The text for this morning's sermon is found in Romans chapter 11, verses 13 through 24. Romans chapter 11, verses 13 through 24. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree engrafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Let's pray together. Father, as we hear now that Saddam Hussein has been captured We want as a people to pray that we renounce all vengeful spirit. Our heart's desire for him is not his destruction, but his salvation. And now, perhaps, the 66th year of his life, on the brink of, no doubt, great trial, you would get to him with someone anointed with the Holy Spirit and filled with the gospel and make him, against all human expectation, a trophy of your sovereign grace. Give great wisdom to our leaders in how to manage this affair so that it does not result in greater violence, but in fact, lesser violence and peace in Iraq. And now, Lord, as we turn our attention to a text that is 
fraught with implications for the Middle East, the proper understanding of Israel, lest we countenance everything the rebellious people does, or lest we fail to see the future that you have for them, oh, that you might bring clarity to this text and to our minds. And I pray that the upshot of this message for this room here and the North Campus would be grace upon grace. Sinners who have not repented would be saved through faith and repentance. And that saints would be made strong as they see the glory of grace. So come and help me to that end, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the follies of trying to turn the gospel into a way of meeting felt needs in 21st century America is that the three main needs that the gospel meets are felt by almost nobody. Right here in our text, there's an explosive word at the center of the gospel. It's the word save or saved. Let's read verses 13 and 14. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as then I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. The loud, joyful, glorious word at the center of the gospel is saved. It's what Christmas is all about, right? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy which shall be to all the people. For unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior. We need to be saved. You shall call His name Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. Right at the center of the meaning of Christmas and the meaning of the Gospel is saved. We need to be saved. So, is that one of the felt needs in America in the 21st century? People wake up in the morning, I need to be saved. Go to bed at night, I need to be saved. Well, it depends, right? Depends on what you mean by saved. Saved from what? Be saved from financial difficulty. Yeah, that would help. So, that's not an obvious answer. Is that a felt need in America? To be saved? So let's clarify the three main things that the gospel does in saving. So if you want to go with me and see them, chapter 5 of the book of Romans. I don't want to fill up this word save with just my evangelical jargon or my history as a born-again Christian, I want to get it right from the Bible. I want to know what the Bible means by saved. So let's start at verse 9, Romans 5. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. There's need number one met in Jesus. The wrath of God is our biggest problem. If it didn't exist, we wouldn't need the gospel. I need to be rescued from the just and holy anger of God against me. That's my main need. Salvation from the anger and wrath of omnipotent God against me. Let's keep reading. For if while we were enemies, verse 10 We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice now in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Saved from the wrath of God and saved for joy in God forevermore. One of the deepest needs every human soul has they do not know it, is to be happy in something bigger than anything this world can offer. Everybody knows they want to be happy. Hardly anybody knows where it's to be found and what they're designed for and what that deep craving is all about in their hearts. And it's all about God. We try to fix it with money and sex and television and leisure and success Power, family, health, exercise, anything. And it's all about God. And so this text says we're reconciled after the wrath is taken care of. Now we're reconciled in order that we might rejoice in God. There is one third need. And I'll just go back to Matthew one twenty one that I quoted a minute ago. You will call His name Jesus. Because He will save His people from their sin. Not simply the consequences of sin in wrath, but the poison of sin and the distorting, contaminating, idolatrous ugliness of sin that ruins everything in life and makes me love stuff more than I love God. I need to be cleansed of all of that. Not just freed from its consequences. I need the disease to be taken away. Not just a rescue from the consequences of its death and wrath. So those are the three things the gospel is designed to do. The gospel saves me from the wrath of God. The gospel cleanses me from the idolatrous, poisonous, all-distorting sin that makes me love other things more than God. And the gospel opens access into, by reconciliation, a sweet, deep, ever-increasing, all-satisfying joy in my Maker forever. There is not a word here about saved from poverty. There is not a word about saved from sickness. Not a word about saved from terrorism. Not a word about saved from obscurity. Not a word about saved from rejection from men. Not a word about saved from having your daughter kidnapped and killed. Don't misunderstand me. 
I believe if you trust Jesus, many things in your lives go better. They just might not, because it's not guaranteed. That's not part of the gospel. Eventually, everything goes better. New bodies, fellowship with Jesus, all sin taken away, justice reigning in the earth. That's coming. But between now and the coming of Jesus or our death, the gospel guarantees three things. My sin being progressively cleansed away, my guilt and the wrath of God being totally taken away, and an ever-increasing intimacy with God, my Father, so that my soul is satisfied in Him when everything else around my soul gives way. So, are those three things felt as needs by American 21st century people? Not most of them. Most of them have God in their back pocket, not with flaming fire over their head in anger. Most of them love their sin, not hate it, fear it, run from it. Most of them have plenty of delights, but not in God. And they're not getting up and going to bed seeking any solution to these three problems, which is why the preaching of the gospel is hard work. It is impossible work. If my job were to meet felt needs, I would not need the Holy Spirit. I know what your felt needs are and I can make you feel really good by stroking them. You all are vain. So if I tell you that you look really nice this morning, you'll like me. And you'll come back to this church and probably give. Everybody wants to be seen as smart and intelligent. So if I tell you you're smart and intelligent, we grow a big church. It's easy to meet felt needs takes no God, no Holy Spirit, no Gospel. What's the hardest thing in the world is to wake the dead. Open the eyes of the blind. Give ears to the spiritually deaf. Give legs of faith to the lame of unbelief. I can't do that. You wonder why I pray before I preach? If God doesn't do something right now, I'm just batting my lips. Paul in this chapter is all concerned with the salvation of Israel. Free them from the wrath of God. Free them from the contamination and poison and idolatry of sin. Free them into a fellowship with their Messiah and their Maker. That's all about Israel experiencing these things. Look at 11.25. Chapter 11, verse 25. just want you to hear the word again in relation to Israel. In the middle of the verse, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. There it is. 
saved. I want all Israel. I want Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and New York and St. Louis Park and Temple Israel, Temple Aaron. I want them saved, freed from the wrath of God, freed from sin, enjoying their Maker and their Messiah forever and ever. That's my heart's desire for this people. That's what this chapter is about. It started with, has God rejected His people? Because so many of them are unbelieving and have rejected their Messiah. And the answer is no. And then everything else in this chapter is a defense and an explanation of that big no. God has not rejected His people. And so for a whole chapter, He's defending and explaining what He means by God's not done with Israel. That's what this chapter is all about. Now today's text, the verse I want to focus on is one verse. Because we're going to be on this paragraph for quite a few weeks. We're going to focus on verse 16. And I'm going to try to unpack for you what the argument is. So let's read 15 and 16. Romans 11. If Israel's rejection means the reconciliation of the world. Remember that from last week. Their trespass leads to salvation for the Gentiles. So if, if their rejection means reconciliation for the world, what will their... Now he entertains this glorious future reality. Their acceptance. So the people that is now rejecting the gospel, this corporate, ethnic totality called Israel around the world, rejecting, he says, what will their... And then he entertains the fact that that group is going to be accepted someday. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And I argued it. that means the resurrection after that great day. So now rejection, stumbling, trespass, hardening, and then acceptance. And then in verse 16, I think what Paul is doing is giving a basis, a foundation, an argument underneath his expectation that all Israel is one day going to be accepted. And here's what he says in verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now those are two pictures that are weird. Well, at least the first one's weird. To us, anyway. Wouldn't have been weird, I don't think, to somebody who knew the book of Numbers and Leviticus pretty well. He's got two images. you got a lump of dough, big lump of dough. You pull off part of it and offer it as holy to the Lord. First fruits of the dough. First piece. And his argument is, if that piece is holy, that whole thing's holy. That's the argument. And then the other picture we know about, roots, tree, branches. If the roots are holy, branches are holy. That's the argument. What's he talking about? Pictures are dangerous, right? Absolutely important, wonderfully helpful, and very dangerous. Metaphors and analogies are helpful and can be taken to crazy lengths and misused. So when you read a parable... If you press the details too hard, you get cults and 
bad theology. And if you take this picture and you work it wrong, you get wrong conclusions. For example, you get a couple of wrong conclusions. If you say, well, look, he took the dough off here, hand of the Lord, holy, that's holy, that whole thing's holy. So every Jew that has ever existed is holy and saved. You could push that. You could form a little cult and say it's a dough cult. All Jews everywhere have always been saved. None is lost and thus contradict dozens of passages of Scripture in the Gospels and in Paul. Or you could do the same thing with the roots. The roots are holy. Branches are holy. All of them. Every Jew that's ever grown out on the, on the tree of the covenant is saved, which would contradict the very paragraph that was just read, branches are broken off because of their unbelief. So don't press the picture where it isn't intended to go in the wider context of Romans. What is it all about then? Let me try this. Let's talk about holy for a minute. And then I'll, I'll suggest an interpretation of these two pictures. When it says the dough is holy, the roots are holy, I think it means set apart for God, it's dedicated to His special possession, it's singled out for Him and His holy use, holy in that set apart for God sense. I think that's the holiness here. And I think the first fruits refers to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the covenant God made with them to have a people for Himself in the world. Israel. And the roots are the patriarchs. And He's arguing, My covenant that I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I set them apart as mine and made them a holy people unto me, holy to the Lord, implies one day the whole tree with all of its branches and the whole lump will be mine, no exceptions. One day. Some whole generation of Israel will finally become mine. Now, I wonder if that's the right interpretation. That's what I'm teaching you every week, that that's the case. Let me take you to verse 28 as the confirmation in the context for my interpretation. So we are now at Romans 11:28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. They as Jews, you as Gentiles. As regards the gospel, the preaching of Christ as the Messiah, crucified and risen, they're enemies. They're rejecting it. A hardening has come upon them. Verse 7. There's been a stumbling. There's been a trespass. There's a rejection. All of that, that salvation might come to the Gentiles, which is implied in those little words, for your sake. As regards the gospel, they are enemies. Now, who's the they? This is corporate, ethnic people, Israel as a whole. They are enemies. When you 
think of them in relation to the gospel. Let me put it in parenthesis here. That's the contemporary Israel in the Middle East. Don't whitewash Israel. Don't be so pro-Israel. You don't understand they are enemies of the gospel. They're not God's privileged people now. Everything they do is not right. Justice should hold sway for Palestinians and Jews. We should treat them the way we do all peoples with justice. They aren't yet repentant. They're not in the tree. They're broken off branches. Be careful here. Let's read the second half of the verse and see what's coming. But, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Now, in the context, that means God chose their fathers. That's why I think the roots are the fathers. Because it says, for the sake of the fathers. So that's, I'm taking that back to verse 16, and where it says the first fruits of the dough and the roots are holy. I'm saying that's what it refers to. For the sake of the fathers. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God chooses them, calls them out of Ur, the Chaldees. You're mine. I'm going to bless the world through you. And therefore this Enmity people right now, they're in enmity, they're lost, they're perishing, they're going to hell without Jesus. One day, because of that holy root, holy first fruits of the dough, one day that election is going to encompass the whole people. A hardening will be lifted and the full number of the Gentiles comes in. And all Israel will be saved. That is, they will become Christian. Be grafted back in the tree where there's neither Jew nor Greek. How does Paul know this? Where do you get this idea? You know, there are a lot of people who interpret Romans 11, indeed the whole New Testament, to say that the church has completely replaced Israel. I do believe the church is the new Israel, which is why I think they have to be Christian in order to be saved. But interpret it in such a way that the reality of physical Israel, ethnic Israel, has no future. And I'm arguing it does because of chapter 11 of Romans. And I'm trying to get inside Paul's head see where he's learning this. Now, you can say, well, God told him. Well, that's true. He did. But God usually uses Paul's own awareness and study of the Old Testament to draw out his own understanding of his apostleship. And So I want to know, did you see this in the Old Testament, Paul? Can I see it where you saw it? And I think we can see it where he saw it. So let's take a few minutes and go back to the Old Testament. So here's the question I'm asking. Get this clear in our heads. Paul believes that because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were made holy, that were chosen from the nations and made God's own, his own first fruits, his own roots, therefore there's coming a day when God will not forsake this people growing up from this root, but will draw them all eventually to himself in some future generation. That's the argument. 
And uh, not every regard, not everybody sees that argument there. And they say, no, the future of Israel is over and they'll just be now Christians from Jew and Gentile. A little remnant here, remnant there. In Jeremiah 24, I think what Paul sees in the Old Testament is so many reaffirmations of the covenant to the people of Israel in their rebellion that he infers God meant that the whole people would one day be properly his own. So I'm going to read a few texts. Jeremiah 24, 5 to 7. You know this situation with Jeremiah. He's, he's the prophet to the people of Israel in exile. They've been punished by God, sent away from their homeland, put in Babylon, and, and he's prophesying their future. And I believe the future he conceives for them goes beyond anything they have yet experienced. Jeremiah 24, 5. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. That has not yet happened. I don't think so. I think Jeremiah's perspective is the typical prophetic perspective where you see multiple mountain ranges as one mountain and that there is a coming back to the land. There is going to be a rededication. It will be sinful people. There will be a lot of rebellion. And we'll have to have these post-exilic prophets who prophesy more yet to come because it's not being fulfilled the way this says. And he's seeing another mountain out there two, three thousand years away. Chapter 31 of Jeremiah, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. In other words, Paul read these texts being addressed to rebellious people in exile And God overcoming all of His wrath and saying, I've loved you with an everlasting love. That's why I'm still going to be faithful to you. It's all over the prophets. Chapter 31, verse 10. He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. Verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. I think when Paul read that, he felt, as he looked around at the rejection of Israel in his own day, saying, God's not done. God's not done. The New Covenant verses that we're also familiar with. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, 
Skip a few verses. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Now I am gloriously and happily aware we apply those words to the church. For this reason, Jesus lifted up the cup at the Last Supper and He said, this cup, this is My blood in the New Covenant. Jesus took the New Covenant promises made to Israel and He said, I'm buying those now with My blood. And we learn, if I could get into Jesus, if I could be related to Jesus, those would be My promises. And I think that's exactly what it means when it says the wild olive branches are grafted in. That's why the church is the proper heir of this promise. The question is, when this promise was made to Israel in the house of Judah, is that now canceled? Because we're included? Is the fullness of the promise for Israel excluded? Is that a necessary corollary to believing that the covenant is fulfilled in the church? I don't think it is. I think Romans 11 precisely is written to show that that's not the case. Keep reading. Verse 35 in Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Verse 37, Thus says the Lord, If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I'll cast off the offspring of Israel. For all that they have done, declares the Lord. They won't be. That's the point. They won't be. To me, if I'd get inside Paul's head here, trying to read these through the eyes of the Apostle Paul, with Romans 11 in my ears, I say, yes, these are new covenant promises for the people of God, including Gentiles. And no, they are not canceled out for the people of Israel Ezekiel, he's the one who takes this idea of the old Abrahamic first root covenant and makes it over and over again an eternal covenant for the people. Listen to this, 1660. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, the root, and I will establish with you an everlasting covenant, branch. Ezekiel 37:26 I will make a covenant of peace with them it shall be an everlasting covenant with them and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever So my answer to the question where did Paul get this idea that if the root is holy the whole thing's going to be holy someday and if the First fruits are holy. The whole thing, the branches, are going to be holy someday. He will not abandon His people. He will stay on Israel until He accomplishes His purpose to have all Israel saved. Where do I get that? I think I get it from the prophets. The prophets prove to Paul that God is not done with Israel, even in their darkest days. 
And I think Paul becomes a prophet for us in chapter 11 of Romans and say, these are the darkest days of all. They're scattered all over the world. They're rejecting their Messiah. And one day, that rejection will turn into acceptance. Now, let's close like this. What am I not saying? You need to clarify some things here. I'm steering a middle way between what seems to me to be two extremes. I am not saying, let it be clear, that because there's a special, scratch that word, because there's a future for Israel as they're grafted back into the tree of the covenant where we already exist, drawing our life from the Messiah, I am not saying there is a special way for Israel to be saved. There are two ways of salvation. There's one way of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Jew and Gentile into one great Christ-fed tree of grace. Here's a second implication of something I'm not saying. I am not saying that any Jew anywhere can now or will ever be able to boast that their Jewishness got them saved. Some of you have asked the very penetrating question. Okay, I think I see in Romans that the rejection or the hardening or the trespass or whatever we want to call it of Israel is leading by God's design to the salvation of the world and the Gentiles, which will then be followed by the jealousy of Israel and all Israel being saved. What I don't get is why God doing it that way. What I don't understand is why He would ordain that there be this season of hardness or stumbling or rejection in order that salvation... Why doesn't He just save them both? Not go around about this way? That's a very good question. Here's one possible answer that we have just touched on today. By ordaining that there be a rejection, hardening, trespass, season of veiled Israel, God makes crystal clear for the nations nobody is saved by their ethnicity or their tradition or their background or their privileged status of Israel or any other religion. What could make that clearer as a gospel truth for the nations than to say, I will put them aside for a whole season to make crystal clear Jewishness saves nobody. Law-keeping saves nobody. Kosher-eating saves nobody. That's the point of the rejection of Israel for a season. It's a gospel truth. Elevation of grace, grace, grace alone saves. And therefore, watch out, Gentiles. Watch out for two things. One, watch out 
that you begin to try to commend yourself to God on the basis of your particular distinctives. Cultural, racial, traditional, background, religious. Watch out that you become those who totally misunderstand how anybody gets saved, namely grace, grace, grace. And watch out for the second thing. Don't say, huh, they were broken off so that I might be grafted in. As though God was looking around for some better branch. He didn't find a better branch. You are not a better branch. We'll get to this eventually, but it's in the text. When they say that in this text, they were broken off so that we might be grafted in. Paul says, that's right. And then he looks him right in the eye. And I think his, his eyes were a flame of fire when he said this. They were broken off because of their unbelief. And you stand fast only through faith. Therefore, fear, or I'll break you off. The whole point of redemptive history and Romans 11 is to free Israel from boasting in Jewishness and to free free Gentiles from boasting over Jewishness. In other words, all boasting is gone because of this strange and wonderful redemptive history. No, I don't cotton with Jewish boasting in Jewishness. No, I won't cotton with Gentile boasting over Jewishness. I cotton to one thing, broken-hearted lowliness, depending on my Son for righteousness and forgiveness. It's all about grace. If you wanted to make plain to the world, after you had chosen a people for your own special possession and worked with them for 2,000 years, if you wanted to make plain to the world, Jewishness saved nobody. What would you do? Well, I'm glad You don't run the world, and I don't run the world. What God did was ordain that there be a season in which the whole Jewish people are rejected. To make crystal clear, it isn't Jewishness. So that when they come back, they will no longer say, it's because I'm a Jew. Anybody in the last day, as the Jews are being gathered in, who begins to make that mistake after this history, will be broken off. And God will see to it that a whole people do not make that mistake. That's what sovereign grace means. That's why the history is God's history. Let's pray. Lord, It really doesn't matter what Saddam Hussein's ethnicity is. And it really doesn't matter how many hundreds of thousands of people he killed. What matters is, would he despair of himself, his vaunted power or ethnicity or Islamic background?
and cast Himself for absolute sovereign mercy on Christ. That's what matters in this room for everybody here and everybody in Iraq. Christ alone, Jew and Muslim and Hindu and Buddhist and secularist and atheist, one way to God, one tree, one set of branches, Christ's tree, fulfilling the promises to Israel for all who will believe in Him. So Lord, make it plain so that we love Israel the way we ought to love and not whitewash secular Israel the way we are tempted to do as American evangelicals. May we lift up the Messiah so beautifully that they become envious and jealous to have Him back. With Your hands, Lord, we commit our lives now in this Christmas season. Put Yourself at the center of it. Guard us from being exorbitant in our celebrations. Keep us simple. Keep grace at the center. Christ, in His name I pray. Amen.